Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, an album that just burns eternally. And today, we have something for the blunted as we dive back to 1991 to talk about the debut self-titled album by Cypress Hill. The first time I ever saw Cypress Hill was at my very first hip-hop show in San Francisco in 91. Cypress, however, were not the headliners. That would have been the trio of third bass, then touring behind their radio single, Pop Goes the Weasel. Cypress Hill was the opening act with only a slow burn B-side, How I Could Just Kill a Man, to their name at the time. Of course, a few years later, and this would all change. Third base would have broken up amidst internal acrimony, but Cypress Hill was now touring stadiums, their popularity fueled in no small part by their reputation as hip-hop's most pro-cannabis advocates. Indeed, their debut album, released in the summer of 91, felt as smoked out as a Cheech and Chong bong. Its sonic feel, courtesy of DJ Muggs, all woozy and hazy. Its mood, set by rappers Sendog and Be Real, alternately paranoid and playful. With all due respect to Dre and Snoop, the Cypress Hill debut remains hip-hop's ultimate homage to the devil's cabbage that Cali kids call the chronic. Nearly 30 years later, and this remains one of my all-time favorite hip-hop albums, as perfect a debut as one could hope for. As I wrote on the occasion of the album's then 20th anniversary back in 2011, Cypress Hill didn't make music to drive by to, their compositions were for those laying in wait. Engine low, blunts lit, lights out. Cypress Hill was the album pick of our guest today, scholar and author Felicia Viator. Recently, I worked on a project where the main character in an impassioned speech used the word learned. And I thought, huh, I'm actually going to bring that back because who's out here saying learned these days? And since there's no time like the present, you should know that Felicia Viator is learned. She's an assistant professor of history at San Francisco State University, where she has previously spent time on the tables as DJ Netta in the Bay. Get it? Mm. Her new book, To Live and Defy in L.A., how Gangster Rap Chased America digs into the genesis of G-Rap in Black L.A. in the 80s and into the heart of the city that birthed the movement, my city. Word on the streets is that as a professor, her lectures are very organized and she always seems well prepared. She is passionate about history and authentic. I got that from RateMyProfessor.com. <laughs> and, might I, and might I add that she is learned. Welcome to Heat Rocks, Felicia Viator. Oh, man. Thank you so much. What an introduction. I don't think I'm worthy. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, not a problem. Thank you for picking this album. So I guess we got to get into what was your introduction to Cypress Hill and this album in particular? Yeah. So, I, man, 30 years ago, that is a trip. Um, I was barely 13. Mm. I just started high school. And um, I came to this album from the single. I know, you know, I think if you listen to interviews with with uh, Muggs or Be Real, 
one of the things they talk about with this album is how folks didn't find it until 1992, most folks, um, and largely because of the B-side of that first single, uh, the Funky Phil one. The B-side, of course, was um, How I Could Just Kill a Man. And um, I might be odd because I came to this album through that single that summer. Um, I started high school, uh, started ninth grade, made friends with a girl who was deep into hip hop, like deep. She was into Public Enemy and EPMD and she liked Too Short and Black Sheep. Um, you know, 13 year old kid being, being, you know, from Oakland, being deep, deep, deep into, um, you know, those those New York artists and some of the, the Bay stuff. Um, and we bonded over that. And she she was on top of that first Cypress single when it came out, the Funky Phil one. And um, I remember she had it, the Kiss single. I mean, we were, ki- <laughs> you know, we were kids. We were kids at that time. And so we were still having sleepovers and we were just listening to hip hop. And I remember that Kiss single and um, borrowing it. And I, I don't know that I ever returned it to her. <laughs> Um, I just, you know, I, I played that, played that shit out. Love that song so much. Convinced my mom to drive me probably to the Southland Mall in Hayward and then um, picked up the whole tape. I remember still that that big cardboard cutout promoting the album um, in the entryway of probably what was a Camelot store inside the mall or whatever. And it's funny, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, it's nuts in a way that I bought this album when it first came out because not only was I very young, uh, you know, I don't think I had any business listening to guys rap about drive-bys and smoking weed and, and pigs. And my dad was a cop. So that was the other <laughs> thing. Not a lot of people know that about me, especially, you know, I, I write about this stuff in LA and I write a lot about um, the LAPD and Daryl Gates. Um, and what a lot of folks don't know is that my dad um, uh, was OPD, Oakland, uh, Oakland Police Department. And not only that, but at that time in the late 80s and early 90s, um, he was uh, narcotics. So he was undercover. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta ask, did your father ever hear pigs? Are you listening to pigs and did he have thoughts? You know, it's funny. I, um... I have this vivid memory of a patch that he had. It was a pig in a in a cop uniform. And I remember this and it was his patch because they had a football league and their mascot was a hog. And so I grew up not knowing that pig was a derogatory term. So I don't think until probably late in high school did I realize that um, that it was, you know, an epithet for cops. Um, and, you know, to my parents' credit, they never... You know, they let us listen to whatever we wanted to listen to. Mm-hmm. And as loud as we wanted to listen to it, there was no, you know, um, censoring of music in our household. Um, and yeah, I give them a lot of credit for that, especially because I'm sure I'm sure they heard this album. I played it so much, um, but there was never any, you know, any outrage over it. So um, 
And a lot of the stuff that I listened to growing up, the stuff that my dad was into, um, you know, the Temptations, Stylistics, James Brown, Otis Redding, you know, Gene Chandler, a lot of that old soul and funk, that early kind of like the lowrider oldies, a lot of that stuff my dad listened to. And it was kind of the music of my childhood. Mm. So there was a connection there that made the sound of that album um, familiar. That makes so a lot ironically, of sense. Yeah. you know, ironically, my dad like laid the groundwork for me to be into that album. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan, what were your what were your first impressions of this album? Were you listening to it back when it first dropped? This was my brother's album mm. and he had it. But I remember looking at the packaging. I felt like it was like a hard rock album. I couldn't mm. I didn't know off the cuff that it was a rap album. I can't remember a specific time, you know, a specific dramatic moment where I was introduced to it. But I grew up in South Central L.A., as everybody knows. Yeah. And um, this was the sound. Um, This was my brother's album. Black Sunday was my album. Mm. So he had his thing and I had my thing. Um, But how I could just kill a man was everywhere. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But uh, if I could just share right off the bat. For me, this album was not what I would describe as a slow burn because I think, you know, I definitely gave it pretty heavy run when it first came out. I still actually have my cassette copy of it someplace in the house, but it's an album that over time has only gotten better to my ears. And I don't think it's always a case that an artist's first album is going to be their best one. And that we've actually talked a lot about this on the show in the past, but I think with Cypress Hill, and this is not to say that their subsequent albums are somehow whack, but I do feel like they did it best when they did it first um, mm. that, you know, some other groups, especially in the same era, I think it took maybe a couple albums for those groups to hit their stride. So, you know, Gangstar's first album was not one of their best, a tribe called quest and public enemy both had very good first albums, but was really their sophomore albums that secured their legacy. And I think with Cyprus, they really just perfected a tone and a style from jump. And Felicia, if we can wrap back to you, what were your impressions of just listening to it? And especially what else were you absorbing at the time? And how did Cypress Hill's album either fit in or perhaps depart from the other music that you were bumping back then? <laughs> well, in terms of rap, the the things I was listening to, I was listening to early MC Hammer. So let's get it started, era Hammer. <laughs> I mean, you were in the Bay, so fair enough. I was in the Bay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, his early stuff was... You know, his his early stuff was grimy. It was good. And I I listened to a little too little too short. Um also uh digital digital underground yes. um sex package. Yes. That I mean speaking of, you know, debut albums being being classics. Um I think I scooped that most, from my copy from Leopold's. Did you ever go to Leopold's in Berkeley have, back then? Oh yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. All right. Shout out. Shout <laughs> yeah, out to the Bay Area right. record stores of your That's right. That's right. Um I was, you know, I was listening to a lot of R&B and, and freestyle still in 89 and 90, you know, right sort of before this, this rap changes in many ways in 91 and 92. Um, so like, God, I'm so embarrassed, but like expose and seduction and sweet sensation, you know, stuff like that. Like, I liked, yeah, the, I liked, those are all gems. Yeah. <laughs> in this crowd, you're in good company. Okay. Those are all jams. Yeah. And I liked a lot of R&B. Like I was listening to Troop. Troop was like the thing I, you know. Uh, <laughs> you taking um, me back, Felicia. Right? So, uh, so. So Cypress does not seem to fit into no, sonically I know, any I know, of that. And I'm try- I know. And I've been trying to figure out what happened. Um, 
I can't, I don't, I can't really put my finger on it except that um, a lot of my friends were listening to, ha- to, to hip hop that, that first year in high school. And I think I just wanted to find something that felt familiar. And as I mentioned, like there was a lot of music that I listened to as a kid that I didn't realize, but that Muggs was using in his production. Right. And so there was a, there was an easy um, way for me to kind of um, relax into it for lack of a better phrase. I mean, I, um, and I, I also, you know, my extended family is very mixed. My dad grew up in East Oakland. So a lot of the family gatherings that we, that we attended, you know, felt a little like low rider gatherings mm. and you'd hear a lot of soul and you hear a lot of stuff like Cypress. And so I think that like, without me realizing I was exposed to these overlapping sounds at that time. And it just, I think it was an easy transition for me from, you know, listening to things like hip hop, I mean, excuse me, and soul and, and, um, and R&B, and then sort of transitioning to a kind of hip hop that had that funk and soul underneath it. I mean, I think that's why I always gravitated toward the West Coast sound. Yeah. Um, and not just the LA sound, but also some of the Bay rap that was coming out, you know, some of the mob rap that was coming out in the early 90s, because it had those flavors that were really familiar to me. I wanted to ask you about Be Real as a front man, because mm-hmm. one of the things that was so compelling about this group was Be Real and his charisma. Mm-hmm. It, for me, was the cell. He was tall. He had the ill voice. What was the draw about Cypress Hill and, and not just their music, but as a band? What was the appeal for you? I mean, he was fine. <laughs> Ooh, all I right. Mean, yeah, like... <laughs> Um, this was, like, you're, you're reminding me in a way that, um, this was kind of like the bad boy boy group for, for kids like me. I mean, I, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, but there, you're right. I mean, there's so much, there was so much interesting about what he was doing, um, especially layered over what Muggs does with his production. I mean, B-Real's voice is basically just another instrument. It, it, there's almost like a, a hi-hat quality to his voice. There's, you know, the melody, the alliteration, the staccato, and a lot of his his delivery. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of on Hand on the Pump when he says, Well, I'm an alley some say a dirty man. On my side is my gut, see him all that. Spitting out fuck shots, boy, I'm going to wet y'all. Running hot, but I'm still coming to get y'all. Like, like there's this up and down, the staccato. And I think like, you know, we, we give Snoop a lot of credit for, you know, sort of um, originating that sing song rap that we associate with guys like Young Thug and Roddy Rich today. And it's like, and I listen back to this album and I think, no, Be Real was, he was, you know, the originator. There's so much, you know, um, melody in his lyrical flow. It's comedy but it's dark i mean i've always been very much into um to horror films and there's a way in which like the way he turns a child you know like a children's song or like a like a playground taunt into something that like a like a horror movie villain Mm. might (laughs) might sing you know the the like on a hole in your head like a hole in your head and your motherfucking head like it's it's like a it's a strange playground taunt that you yeah. would, that you would hear in a horror film, and there's something mm-hmm. that is for, that was for me really appealing to that musically. Um, it's a it's a dark tone, but it's you know I, I understand the appeal to something like 
like Black Sabbath listening to Cypress Hill. Like I understand, you know, or even something like, you know, black metal. Like I kind of, I kind of get the appeal of something so dark and um, almost evil sounding, but you know, he just, he made it fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you got, totally. you got me thinking now, whatever Jordan Peele's next film is with the trailer is going to use a, a slowed down spooky right. version of hand of of hole in the head and it's going to take that same line but now it's going to make it all right. ghostly you know with like a right. child singing it because that's just what people do for trailers now yeah <laughs> morgan you could hook that up you know pitch Listen. that pitch that right there yeah for sure because you well, know how sure. i could just how i could just kill a man was at the end of juice and that you know there's a sure was. There's yeah. that drama and yeah. the, it's it's dark and you know that house party is um, you know, it, it, it looks, uh, you know, it looks a little sketch. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, it, 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 it works. It works in those kinds of soundtracks. Morgan, what were yeah. your thoughts about Be Real and just the, the MCs of the crew? I mean, I, I loved Be Real and I like the back and forth, you know, between him and Sin. Like it was, a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a complete difference between like the comedy of Flavor Flav coming back against Chuck D. This was like, Sin Dog was like the, that evil voice in your head that was shouting out stuff that was like really ill. It was the devil sitting on your shoulder. And I liked the back and forth between them because he was just echoing the stuff, you know, that was being said in prep for the chat. And I know this album comes a little bit later, but so much of this album or so much of the, you know, the production on here reminds me of Wu-Tang and it reminds me of, of some of the arrangements on there. Like, like how I could just kill a man reminds me of tears from Return of the Thirty Six Chamber, mm. and I know, mm. and I know that it's later. Yeah, I know that it's it's years later, but there's just some there's just some similarity, and I don't know, and I hadn't hadn't thought about that before until I was like thinking, and I was I happened to be listening to Wu Tang, and I was like, ah, there's something here. I would love to know what Cypress Hill thought of Wu Tang. What really strikes me about this album, and I didn't really even think about this until you know prepping for for today, is if you think about pre chronic albums out of Los Angeles that are not connected to NWA because obviously that that family is is pretty deep between Ice Cube going solo and you got the DOC blah 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 but Cypress Hill wasn't really connected to that those existing crews they were in a large way it, they felt like they were out on their own even though you can draw a lot of linkages between the stuff thematically and musically with other groups but they didn't sound really like low profile. They didn't sound like Compton's most wanted. It didn't sound like DJ quick. Um, right. Muggs's production, I think was, was really ahead of its time, especially in terms of, and maybe we'll get into this either in the first half or second half. But if you listen to the layers of complexity he's working with, it reminds me a lot of the bomb squad, just not nearly as noisy, but there's a lot going on there um, that he's putting into every song on this album. But isn't isn't um isn't Muggs from Queens? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he came to LA in '84. Yeah, I think he was like 15 or 16. Yeah. And I always wondered yeah. if that if that explained a little bit of the difference why he wasn't wedded to to the some of the funk, you know, exactly. that you heard on on later West Coast. Was that just the New York thing, the New York train coming in with him? I've I've heard him in interviews talk about how when he first came to LA and he started. I mean, he was like a DMC champ or like or competed in DMC. I mean, he was you know sort of 
um, thinking about DJing in different ways before he started producing. And then when he started producing, um, he said that he wanted to be Marley Marl. Like he was like mm. interested in a New York sound. And I also heard him talk about, you know, so he was with that group 7A3. Right. Right. Before, um, which had, a, it had, they had a song on the color soundtrack. They had an album. Coolin and Cali. Maybe. Yeah. That was one of their right. singles. And yeah. I, I think I could be wrong, but I think he worked with, some of the guys from the bomb squad on that album, or maybe there was some production that they did for that album. So he had some connection to them and I've heard him talk about being influenced by that organized noise Mm. process. Um, And I hear it. I mean, there are ways in which like some of these tracks on this album, you know, listening back to it, some of them sound a little like bomb squad production. Very. Um, Yeah. I think about that now, especially after having written the book, like, you know, thinking about him, Muggs and his influence on, on Cypress Hill. And I think what, what you, what you just said, Oliver, in terms of Cypress Hill sort of being on their own, I think is, it has something to do with the fact that, you know, Muggs is involved. He's got that New York influence. I think B-Real is influenced by guys like KRS-One and Chuck D. He's talked about that. And you can hear it a little bit in songs like Funky Feel One. I mean, it's basically like, braggadocio rhyme, um, you know, where your skills and your prowess are, you know, weapons. And it, so it reminds me of like my easy ways a ton. Um, mm, so there are those mm-hmm. New York connections there, but also they're not trying to be Kid Frost and they're not trying to be Melomenes. Right. Like they've, they really did not want that label. And you can kind of hear it in the album, like, it's, you know, all the way through till the end when Latin lingo is kind of this afterthought, there's not there, you know, I don't, I think they're trying to avoid being pigeonholed that way. And so, yeah, I think it, it, it creates for an album that just feels very, um, very different, very unique. We will be back with more of our conversation with author and scholar Felicia Viator about Cypress Hill's debut eponymous album. After a brief mm. word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts, keep it locked. Hey, I'm Janet Varney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, oh, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. Judge Don Hodgman won a Webby in the comedy podcast category. After 10 years of production, Judge John Hodgman has finally won the Susan Lucci of the Webbies. What is Judge John Hodgman? Comedy writer and television personality John Hodgman settles disputes between friends, family, co-workers, partners, and more. Is Machine Gun a robot? Should a grown adult tell his parents about his tattoos? Should a family be compelled to wear matching outfits on vacation? 
Listen to Judge John Hodgman to find out the answers to these age-old disputes and more. If you haven't listened to Judge John Hodgman, now is a great time to start. Judge John Hodgman is available on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Yo, we're back on Heat Rocks with scholar and author Felicia Viator talking Cypress Hills, Cypress Hill. So Felicia, and I should have said this in the first half, but I just want to give of the many shout outs that we've had so far, just a quick <laughs> shout out to Soulstrut, the website that you and I first met through back when message boards were a thing pre-social media or it was the proto-social media. So any any Soulstrut folks out there listening, it's it's your 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 boy Manny Ballone, aka O Dub, aka I had several names I went by, and then DJ Netta. And um shout out to your husband, Ross Hogg, who I think right. I also met through Soulstrut as well. So it's yeah. Good times, good times. I had a question for you about your book, To Live and Defy in L.A., because sure. at this point in time, there have been many books that have been written about the rise of gangster rap uh, music on the West Coast. So what do you do in your book that you think departs from what the existing pantheon of uh, West Coast hip-hop histories have done? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, as you can tell from the title, I mean, this is, this is you know, on the one hand, it's an origin story about L.A. rap. Um, but it, it's also a book about how hip hop artists ultimately cross over and get access to the popular mainstream. And I felt like with the exception of maybe um, Dan Charna's book, The Big Payback, which great came book. out yeah. Yeah, many years ago. Great book. Yeah. Um, with the exception of his book, I felt like the history of how rap crosses over hadn't been told very well. Um, and specifically, I felt like it hadn't been explained in terms of L.A.'s role in that process. Hmm. Um, you know, LA rap for all intents and purposes, from my perspective and, you know, the research told me that, that it's LA rap that ultimately saves hip hop from fading into oblivion. Um, I mean, it, 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 from my perspective as a historian, it saves hip hop from whitening up the way that other black genres did when they crossed over. Hmm. Um, you know, LA rap resists what many figured was rap's inevitable fate, um, especially by, you know, like 91 folks, even, you know, guys like, um, uh, you know, Village Voice was saying this and, um, uh, you know, there were folks high up in hip hop that just assumed that the, the fate of hip hop was that it would become the soft, neutered, un- unrecognizable thing, you know, defined by the groups that were on the top of the charts at the time, like people like um, PM Dawn and Vanilla Ice in 1991, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to show in this book how LA rappers and producers and promoters and and especially fans in LA, really the entire LA scene, how that lays the groundwork for hip hop to cross over without losing its edge, without mm. becoming white um, and becoming, you know, sort of um, benign. So the late, 1980s for me was an important moment to study because it seemed like this sort of watershed moment in the history of hip hop, because it's when artists are figuring out how to get around old industry standards and old, old expectations of how to cross over. So, you know, I wanted to write a book that explained how these guys were working within a racist industry. They were living within a bigoted society, but then they navigate in these sort of sophisticated ways around that and ultimately succeed with their music um, in pervading American culture, you know, for better, or for worse. And, you know, some many, many, many people 
um, thought it was for worse. Um, but you know, the story is, is how, how these guys figure out how to make their own rules for crossing over. And that's an LA story, um, which hadn't been told. So that was the mission with the book. And so where do you think Cypress Hill actually fits into there? Because I think one of the things that's so striking about the group is that they were not just some kind of cult niche, you know, favorites. These were group they, they were a group that were as i mentioned in my intro they're doing arenas they're doing stadiums and of course yeah, part right. of it is, is driven by the fact that they became they become adopted um by the the weed set basically and so they're playing shows that other hip-hop groups may not necessarily have entree into but because they're seen as being pro-legalization and, and pro-cannabis this certainly is a huge part of their brand so where does cypress fit into that story and that narrative that you're telling felicia yeah you're making me think how Interesting it is that, you know, they played Lollapalooza back in 92, but so did Ice Cube. Right. Ice Cube was playing those same festivals, but it's, it's Cypress Hill that ends up um, dominating the sort of, you know, the kind of white rock market. Like they go that direction and, and it works for them. I mean, they basically, you know, they're touring with House of Pain and and the Beastie Boys by 93. Right. So they're, they've definitely found their niche. and. and it's interesting to me that, you know, I know Ice Cube was doing those same those same concert circuits and it just it didn't work out the same way for him. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that. Right. Um, but but I think this is this goes to, you know, uh, the point that we're both making is they didn't read necessarily read. Yeah. As, as gangster rap and became a little bit more palatable. I mean, they did play right. 90, 92, but 91 Ice T's there. Ice T and Body Count, you know, oh, plays right. the same plays the same festival. And I think it, I think whether by accident or on purpose they didn't shout out their neighborhood was pretty good too because gang culture in L.A. certainly in 1991 you know you got by the end of the year you got 700 gang killings but gang culture is about neighborhood yeah. and I think had they had they shouted out their particular neighborhood the result might have been different right. but they stayed very not to say that they didn't have neighborhood pride because everybody does in L.A. but they didn't put that stamp. On they all they said was Cypress Hill, but they didn't shut right. out their neighborhood, and I think that was smart. I mean, wasn't it by either their third or fourth album? One of their songs was "Throw Up Your Set," so it's like eventually they they make yeah. their way they there. They get but, there, but they didn't start there. And I think Morgan, right. you, you make I think a really really great point about thinking about how this plays out locally, which is that if you're trying to avoid getting yourself into some real potential trouble, yeah, you're not mm-hmm. going to go out of your way to basically shut out your blocks because that creates potential dissension. So yeah, I think that's a yeah. great observation. Yeah. So bring this back, not that we haven't already been talking about Cypress Hill, but to bring it back to this album, let's get, let's get into some, some difficult conversations around what is, what's the fire track off of this album? What is the song that just really, really gets you hype? Me? <laughs> I mean, so I, I have to say this is not a popular answer, but the funky feel one is still my favorite track. Yes. Um, and I, you know, and part of it is because there's this four bar baseline in this track that is my favorite moment on the entire album. Um, you know, it's it, the whole song is like perfect mugs production. You know, it's, it's, it's that organized sound process. Like there are layers and layers and layers of samples here. He uses drums and horns and vocals and bass lines and this from like a whole range of funk and soul records. Um, You know, he's got Cool in the Gang, James Brown. um, I think the Isleys are in there, the Barkays. I mean, it's just on and on and on. And what I love about the track is that 
it's got that organoid, organized noise sort of um, that symphonic sound. And right in the midst of all of that, there's this point when Muggs strips everything down to just this four bar baseline. Um, it's the four bars that introduce Sendog's first verse. And there's this, just this intensity of the layers of the samples and the drums and the chorus, and then it just drops out. And all that's left is that low, bouncy bass line um, that he takes from just this one bar of a bass riff in a song by Fred Weasley and the JBs called More Peas. And it's just that perfect four-bar uh, bass line that just sets, makes that, that track the best on the, on the whole album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the one track on the album that is like classic braggadocio, which is interesting too, listening back, because it's, you know, um, there's this, there's always this threat in, in B-Rail's delivery. You know, it's so, it's so dark and menacing. Um, you know, you can literally get beat down with his verses. Morgan, how about you? What's your fire track? Well, I have to go back to the funky feel one because that's my favorite. The moment that she talked about is my favorite moment mm, on that album. Mm. Um, that change up is so smooth and so nice. It's like while while we are head nodding, they just slip that groove in on us, that funk in on us, and yeah. that ju- that change up is just so. I mean, it's just so on point. So that's my favorite moment, and I love the funky feel one. My favorite track. I mean. As Oliver, you like to say, low-hanging fruit. But how I could just kill a man is <laughs> Gotta fire. Gotta be. Gotta be. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely my fire track as well. And I mean, I, I'm so in awe of what Muggs in particular does with this song, especially for the time in which he's making this. I mean, again, 91 is still relatively early in a lot of ways in terms of you thinking about production technique and hip hop. And I went to the extent where, um, I used a, a I'm going to get a little nerded out here, but there's a program, an annotation program that works with audio and video that was produced out of USC called Scalar. And I learned how to use this a few years back and basically annotated every bar in this song to analyze what samples Muggs was using, when he's using it, how long he's using it for, just so that you could get an understanding of everything that's going on there because there's so many different snippets that works its way in. And uh, my friend, Lauren Kajikawa, who is a musicologist and was on our, our proto heat rocks episode talking about the chronic chimes in and basically offers some musicological analysis. I'll include a link to this whole kind of annotated breakdown of the song in the show notes, but this song is just, it's perfect. I mean, this is, it's completely Mm -hmm. flawless. And again, if you just really sit and listen, maybe 
enjoy a little a little bit of the product that the group is known for before you sit down and just pick out bar by bar everything that Muggs is doing in here. Uh, it's 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 minor miracle. Now that said, as time has gone by, I think one of the songs that I've I've regravitated to. It's not going to be better than how I could just kill a man, but a song that I that I love, just love, love, love off this album is the funky Cypress Hill shit. And one of the reasons is, is for a group, as we've been discussing, that doesn't necessarily have very obvious, explicit shouts out to Los Angeles. This song is sampling from the Village Callers' Hector, which is a as L.A. of a record as you can get. It was recorded live in Los Angeles. The label was a local L.A. label. The manager of the, of the Village Callers was the same person who discovered El Chicano and put out Viva Torado. So... And maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it was just like, I mean, the original Hector track is a, it's a really, really great LA funk track. It might've just been that mugs or someone put mugs up on it. He wasn't thinking of using it just because it was an LA record. Nonetheless, when I hear it now and I hear Hector, like I just make those ties that this is an LA group using an LA song to make this song. Morgan, you mentioned earlier what your favorite moment off of the album is, that the change in the beat on Funky Feel One. For me, my favorite moment, um, and I don't think this would have been my answer back in 91, but probably about maybe 10 or, or 12 years ago, I was in a club and the DJ began to loop up the beginning of Hand on the Pump, where which is Duke, mm. Duke, Duke, Duke of, except he he purposely lengthened it so that when you expect the beat to drop, it doesn't drop yet. So by the time, and I don't know how long he let he let this go on for, but it built up so much anticipation because you knew what was supposed to come <laughs> that by the time he dropped it, that moment felt amazing. guitar yes but but also you know mugs is sitting there listening to was it gene chandler's duke of earl and thinking yo i could loop that like what (laughs) why would you ever come up with that idea of turning duke 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 into a loop but it just works so well Felicia, do you have do you have a favorite moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's that four bar bass line in Funky. Uh, like that that is I, Morgan and I are on the same page there, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. You're, Oliver, you mentioned that the Duke of Earl that that 
that intro. And it's funny because I was thinking like that track tells me that Muggs was definitely influenced during those years since 84 when he came to, to L.A. by Lil' Ryder Car, Car, Car mm-hmm. Culture. He had to have been. I mean, yeah. talk about a classic. And so, yeah, that 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 track is really interesting. That intro is great. Uh, the, the other moment I'll mention is um, on Born to Get Busy, also, uh, a track that gets forgotten. There's that Aretha vocal at the beginning yeah. that I love. I love yeah. that. those little touches that Muggs puts in here and there and it's just so surprising but so memorable you just keep coming back to those little those little moments Felicia if you had to describe this album in three words what would they be <laughs> um horror comedy infectious mm. If our audience liked this week's album, we have some recommendations for what you should listen to next. For me, and this goes back to what I was discussing about earlier about pre-chronic albums out of LA, I would recommend people check out Above the Law's Living Like Hustlers from 1989. Mm. And this was also a debut album uh, by a a quartet of people out of Pomona, California, uh, comprised of Cold 187, um, KMG, The Illustrator, Go Mac, and DJ Total Chaos. All excellent, excellent early 90s hip-hop names, I may say. Um, Unlike Cypress Hill, this was somewhat NWA-affiliated because uh, Dr. Dre did help produce parts of the album. And I believe Cold 187 um, actually helped to work on parts of The Chronic, if, if I get some of that timeline right. I think along with the Cypress Hill album, these two, Living Like Hustlers uh, and uh, the Cypress Hill album, were two of the most potent pre-chronic gangster rap albums that I think came out of LA that wasn't directly out of NWA or Ice Cube. And so if you've never heard the Living Like uh, Hustlers LP, definitely check it out. I I think you'll be very, very pleased by it. Yeah, this is radio station KMG. And whenever you want to hear some funky shit, put your dial on 187. Now some new music by some homeboys out of South Central. Here's ATL and they call this one Living Like Hustlers. Let me start it off because I'm a player. Fade into part two. I'm the number one whole layer Mac. A player in a pimp. Something much stronger than your average drink. Morgan, how about you? I would say uh, skip ahead five years, but keep it in L.A. and go to uh, Psycho, the Psycho Realm's 1997 self-titled debut. Mm. Um, you get the left coast lingo and the best coast scenarios. Be Real is involved. So if you want that that menacing, that ominous, that nasal, you've got all that. And there's some heaters on there. And I'd say... Uh, La Connecta is one of them, but the big payback mm. is the big payoff. I just want to shout out my colleague in my in the social department in my college, uh, Stephen Osuna, who wrote about Cycle Realm as part of his dissertation. So. Shout out to all the academics out there writing about hip hop. Salute. Yeah, we, yeah mm-hmm. our, our crew runs deep. 
Felicia, how about <laughs> how about you? What would be your, your recommendation for um, our audience members to check out after they they have finished with Cypress Hill? I'd recommend Ice Cube's third album, The Predator. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are direct connections there between Cube and Cypress because Muggs produces three of the tracks, yeah. including, um, you know, the album version of Check Yourself that nobody knows about. <laughs> Which, is Which is it dope. Which is dope. The album version's I great. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he also produces We Had to Tear This Motherfucker Up, yes. which is, you know, it's also classic mugs. You know, he's using, he's using, you know, even samples from um, like an Eyes on the Prize documentary at the beginning of that. So it's, it's very, um, you know, interesting mugs, organized noise production. The jury found that they were all not guilty. Like Make guilty. it rough. Guilty. 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 A lot of activity continues here. Make it rough. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, SF State professor, my fellow CSU colleague, Felicia Viator. Her new book is To Live and Defy in L.A., which is all about the rise of gangster rap in the West Coast. Felicia, what else are you working on now? Um, right now, I'm promoting the book primarily um, and uh, hopefully beginning a textbook on California history that is going to be um, focused on pop culture. So I'm Ooh. trying to do, do something for the kids. <laughs> and then I'll probably return to um, some research on the 80s, but um, I'm interested in uh, fear and paranoia and parenting. Oh, so that's where I'm going next. <laughs> it's a little left, but <laughs> where can people find you online? Um, they can find me at mama underscore netta. That's my handle on Twitter. Um, and then my my uh, website is just my name, FeliciaViator.com. Felicia, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a fun album to talk about with you. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is great. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, headquartered in Los Angeles, where stoned is the way of the walk. Well, it's for some. It's been a while, and we want to thank all of our five-star iTunes reviewers, the most recent being MTH, or I guess MT Harris 78 who wrote that, quote, if you're a music nerd or casual observer who wants to learn more, this is the place. Thank you, MT Harris 78 If you have not had a chance yet, please, please consider leaving us a review. It is a big way in which new audience members can find their way to us. One last thing, here is a teaser for next week's episode, which features author Adam Mansback talking with me about the debut album by Black Sheep, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. It resonated with me because, for one thing, it was very relatable. Not that I was rolling around town Big Willie style the way that Drez was talking about, but there was a mundanity and an everydayness even to the braggadocio that he was engaged in and there was there was an aspiration to be slick and smooth and to kind of move with a certain kind of ease and a certain arrogance and cockiness that seemed both larger than life and well within reach if that makes sense <laughs>